Our sermon passage today is from Hebrews 13, 7 to 19. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls, as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Amen. You guys may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, we are eager for you to speak to us. We believe this is your word. We believe that it's true. We believe that it's good. We believe that it's helpful. We believe that we need it. So Lord, we're pleading that you would speak to us from it. Lord, our prayer today is that you would peel away all forms of religious idolatry. And show us Jesus, the Savior, the Redeemer, the Lord, the one who lived, died, rose again, that we might have life. Help us, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you haven't already, please take your Bibles and turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, um, that was just read for us. Uh, Here at Redeemer, we're working our way through the book of Hebrews and and in particular through these verses, um, which we just heard. Uh, Last week, we looked at verses 7 and 8, and today we're going to kind of dive in in verse 9. Our sermon today is entitled, Outside the Gate, uh, and so titled from these, these two references to Jesus suffering outside the gate and this call that we as his people Go and live outside the camp where Jesus is. So that's what we want to consider today. And so here's the truth that we're going to see in this passage. We're going to see that 
that our place before God is always by grace. Our place before God is always through Christ. We're going to see that our hope and our status and our acceptance is always by the gift of God's grace. And it's always through Jesus. And then the passage is going to call us to respond accordingly. So this is the truth that we're being called to latch on to today. I need Jesus. And my heart is prone to manufacture all sorts of things to cling to that distract me from Jesus. That's the truth that we're going to cling to today. And so as astute followers of God's word, you should say, okay, now show me that in the passage. And so that's what we're going to do for the next few minutes. Always grace, always Christ, respond accordingly. So the passage began in verse 7 about remembering our leaders, particularly leaders past tense. Those that spoke God's word and God's gospel to us. Those who live faithfully to the end, and the passage says, imitate their faith. And then verse 8 comes to this statement that might appear out of left field, but it's actually a bridge. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And so that's the truth that really launches this, this passage today. Jesus Christ is unchanging. God's method of salvation is unchanging. God's purpose of grace is unchanging. What people needed in the 1800s and what people need today and what people will need in the next decade is the exact same thing. The powerful, saving grace of God extended to his people because of Jesus. That is the reality. But the author of Hebrews notes a danger. And so if you're a note taker today, the first point is danger. And the danger is this. That for some reason that boggles my mind and frustrates my soul, we are prone to manufacture new, more tangible, more earthly, more experiential ways to approach God that depend on us. And I don't get it. I don't get it. And yet it's true. There's something in the human heart that's addicted to the new and the novel and the better. And in many paths of life, that's not bad. But when it comes to relating to God, we don't need that which is new. We don't need that which is novel because there's nothing better than the saving grace of God extended to us in the person and the work of Jesus. But this passage notes this, this human tendency And is offering a stern warning. Do not, verse 9 says, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. He is assuming and he knows that the hearers of this word are 
prone to being led away and persuaded by the diverse and the strange and the new and the novel. And the author of Hebrews says, don't be fooled. And that's what we have to wrestle with today. So if we're going to wrestle with this reality, the first thing for us to do is to recognize that we have a love affair with the new and the novel. If you don't believe me, just pull up the stock price of Apple, Microsoft, and Google. We have a love affair with the new and the novel. And that's fine. My phone's new. My computer's newish. My Wi-Fi network's new. My TV's new. That's fine. But when it comes to relating to God, the new and the novel doesn't serve us. It distracts us. Whatever you do professionally, when you get there tomorrow morning, if I'm on your front door as a salesman and I say, I have a new and a better way for you to fill in the blank, whatever it is you do, how many of you are letting me in? How many of you will at least hear me out for at least five minutes? Almost every one of us. That's not necessarily bad practice. If capitalism pays your bills, then look for better and more efficient ways to do things. But that wiring of the human heart, that wiring of our culture, that disposition that pervades us doesn't serve us in our relationship to God. Because what we need has been given to us. What we need has been spoken and declared. What we need is unchanging. We need Christ and his mercy and his grace and his forgiveness and his spirit and his word. And we already possess it. The path forward in Christianity is through the path that we've already been on if we are in Christ. And so you get this warning that doesn't come out of left field. It comes out of human reality. And he says, don't be led away by diverse and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to him. So look what he's setting up. There's grace and there's that which is diverse and strange and new and novel. There's the path of grace and there's the the path of that which is more physical, more earthly, more tangible, more experiential. And what he says is, don't try to mix Oil and water together. Don't try to put together a path of grace and of another way. Because grace by definition doesn't make room for any other way. Grace means undeserved. Grace means unmerited. Grace means you cannot earn it. If you earn it, it's not grace. And so when the passage says... Be strengthened by grace. What he's saying is this affinity with food, and we'll talk about that in a minute, is a more earthly, tangible, physical, experiential way to approach, to attempt to approach God that is by definition an enemy of grace. 
Don't settle for anything less than the grace of God extended through the person of Jesus. That's the argument that he's making. Now, y'all can breathe a little easy here. I don't think the author of Hebrews is anti-food. Okay? I had breakfast this morning. I'm not having lunch today, but that's not a religious thing. It's because there's a Christmas party tonight. And I'm going to have a whole bunch of food about 5 o'clock. This passage is not anti-food. But what's going on in this time is most likely Christians who have left Judaism and its temple practices of, of foods and washings and ceremonial cleansings and sacrifices and slaughtering animals and burning them outside the camp. They've left this for Christ, but there might be a tendency to to bring some of it back in because it helps us connect with Jesus. That's connect with Jesus air quotes if you're listening online. And what he's saying is, don't do it because you can't have this affinity with tangible, physical ceremonial, ritual law-keeping as a place to earn status before God and rest upon grace. They are enemies. Be strengthened by grace and not by this affinity with, with food and with stuff. And then he points out, there's no benefit to this other way. Don't seek to be strengthened by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. What he's saying is, within this Judaistic system, there would be a sacrifice, and the sacrifice would be killed, and it would be taken outside the camp, and it would be burned, and no one would feast upon it, and no one would enjoy the benefit of it, because all it was intended to do was to point to Jesus. And now that he's come, feast on him. So the author is setting up this this dichotomy of food and ritual and looking forward with no real tangible benefit to grace and Christ and feasting. And what he's saying is, in Christ, we are the people of grace. We have the better sacrifice. We get to know the saving power of God, and we get to feast upon him. We get to enjoy him. We get to bear the fruit of knowing God through Jesus. Jesus is the better way and don't be duped into anything less. So the main kind of point here for verses 9 and 10 is don't be duped into anything less than the saving grace of God extended to us through the person of Jesus. Don't settle for anything less because it will train wreck and derail your soul. Now let's do some application before we leave this point. So the obvious application in this passage at the time that it was written was speaking to Judaism and the cult of priests and the holy place and the temple and the holy offerings and the holy sacrifices and the holy high priest and all the stuff. And what, it, what the passage is clearly saying is don't go back because that system will not benefit your soul. Only Christ will benefit your soul. Now, like good modern American Christians, this is what we do. We go, well, you know what, man? I've never once been tempted to return to Judaism. So I'm good. But you're not. So let's let's fast forward a little bit. In the year 1517, 
Something began known as the Protestant Reformation. A man named Martin Luther nailing things to doors on churches in Germany. But what was the, what was the real issue? The real issue was that the church in Luther's time in the 1500s had erected new ways to find more tangible, more earthly, more experiential ways to, to experience God and was missing Jesus because of it. And Luther was shouting, verse 9 of Hebrews 13, Don't be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. And so the point of mentioning the Reformation is, yeah, to appease all the nerds like me. But much more than that, the point of mentioning the Reformation is to say that what he's warning of in Hebrews 13 has played out over and over and over again in the history of the church. We're prone to erect more human, more earthly, more tangible, more experiential ways to, air quote, approach God that are really distracting us from grace and Christ and atonement and dependence upon God. So if it came all the way forward to the Reformation, I skipped a bunch of instances, it comes spinning forward all the way to today. And so the question this morning is, where am I in danger? Where are we in danger of settling for less than grace to strengthen our hearts and our minds and our lives before God? What things are we clinging to to prop ourselves up to make us believe that God loves us, to make us believe that God's more pleased with us, to make us believe that God cares for us? My goal is to ask some penetrating questions here that maybe cause every one of us to leave here scratching our heads and wrestling deeply with Hebrews chapter 13, verse 9. Everybody ready to be convicted? Good, here we go. Is it possible that we're guilty of elevating religious performance as that which feeds and satisfies our soul over depending upon God's grace. Now hear me clearly. Is it possible that subtly when we lay our heads on the pillow at night, we find our joy and our peace in what we've done for God today? We read the Bible. We prayed. We shared the gospel with a coworker. We did Advent Jesse Tree with our kids took some cookies to our neighbors. We went to church on Sunday. We even gave while we were there. Most of the time in the car today, I listen to K-Love instead of sports radio. Which, can I just go on record? You don't have to do that to be a Christian. Here's the thing. All those things are good. I'm for all of them. I would hope that tomorrow morning I would wake up and read the scripture. I'm hoping that tomorrow morning I would enter a day of walking in prayer with the Lord. I'm hopeful that tomorrow, some point, I would have the opportunity to share the grace of Jesus with someone who doesn't know him. I'm hopeful that tomorrow my family will sit down and open the Bible and do our Advent Jesse tree remembrance of Jesus. And I'm hopeful that I would worship God throughout the day. Maybe on a different radio station, but in some way. But the reality is, is a fine line. Am, am I doing those things because the grace of God is pushing me to be different? Or am I performing them to, to make myself 
look better before God. Because if we're doing these things to make ourselves look better before God, then we are not strengthening our hearts by grace, but we're strengthening them by other things like foods. Is it possible that we've elevated cultural, religious standing as a way to placate our souls and convince ourselves that God is for us? Here's what I mean. The fact that I am a citizen of the United States of America has nothing to do with how God views me. Nothing. How I voted in the last election has nothing to do with how God views me. What political causes I champion on Twitter has nothing to do with how God views me. The fact that I'm moral and upstanding and, and, and better than some of the people I hang out with has nothing to do with how God views me. But America has a cultural religion that often performs within and behind the signs of evangelical churches. And if we believe that our status and our acceptance before God is rooted in how we function in this um, churchianity of American subculture, we are guilty of elevating something above grace and not being strengthened by grace. All I bring to the equation of my salvation is my sin. And everything else is a gift from God. We're going to keep going. Could it be that we've elevated in our minds how God thinks of us based upon the church that we attend, the denomination that we're a part of, or the tribal preferences that we, um, that we celebrate within Christianity. I love Redeemer Church. I love the gathering that is here. But if for a second we begin to believe that God thinks more highly of us because we're here and not there, then we are elevating where we are members above depending upon grace. And God would not be pleased with that. And Hebrews 13.9 would caution us to stop. If we elevate the denomination that we're a part of or not a part of and begin to believe that God's more satisfied with us than that one over there inherently because what we're a part of is better, then we are guilty of missing the point of grace. If we begin to elevate the tribal preferences that we love within Christianity, be that young, restless, and reformed or old, rested, and not reformed, or um, whatever labeled hashtag you want to slap on your expression of the faith, if you begin to believe that that makes you better and essentially more beloved by God, then we are elevating performance over grace. And so here's the warning for us, not 
am I in danger of being persuaded by that which is diverse and strange and new and novel? But in what ways is my heart being wooed and strengthened by the physical and the earthly and the tangible and the experiential over wholehearted dependence upon God. Because the Bible and the gospel and the life of Jesus are simply to say, I offer my life for you. And that's it. We bring nothing else to the table. And if that's shocking to our psychology, to hear that we bring nothing to the table besides the problem, then we need to wrestle with the gospel anew. So to the danger, what's the, what's the answer? The answer is grace. It's grace. Ultimately, the answer is the grace of God extended to us through Jesus. The answer is always Christ. Verse 10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Now let's do a little Bible here if we can. We've got to go a little bit in the Old Testament to come up. So this, this Judaistic, sacrificial, high priestly kind of temple-based or tabernacle-based system... What it offered was the people would bring an animal and sacrifice it as an offering to God for God to delay his wrath against the sin of the people. You can read all about this in Leviticus 16. Who needs the Titans game when you can spend your afternoon reading Leviticus? Or you can just skip all the way to 16. Or you can just skip all the way to 16 verse 27, okay? However you want to do that. And you're not more holy if you read the whole book, okay? So I just said that, okay? Okay, so. But what would happen is, is that the animal would be slaughtered, the blood would be poured out, and, and it would be offered as a, as, a, as a sacrifice before God. And then the animal would be taken outside the camp, outside the city, and would be burned, And so the point that's being offered here is those who, the high priest, those who slaughtered the animal, they didn't get to feast upon it. They didn't get to enjoy it. They didn't get to celebrate it. It was slaughtered. It was gone. It was in that area outside the camp, which is the place where the unholy and the unclean And the Gentiles and those far from God were restricted outside the camp. So the animal would be burned out yonder, we might say, here in the south. If you're from the north, that means over there. 
But what this passage says is we get to experience something far greater because Jesus, he did something far greater. He himself actually went outside the camp while alive, which tells us he's offering something better than what was going on inside the camp in the temple. And outside the camp were the unclean and the unholy and the unrighteous and those who didn't know God and didn't have his word. Out where they dwelled, Jesus died. He shed his blood on the cross to, the Bible says, sanctify. That's to make all the unholy holy. To make all the unclean Clean to make all those who are don't belong to God belong to God, to give purpose to all of those who were rejected and far off. Christ went outside the camp to do that for us. So, in the words of, of one commentator, that which was unholy became holy, and that which was holy became unholy because Jesus outside the camp, provided the better way. We have a better altar. That's a better approach to God through the blood of Jesus. And the blood of Jesus shouts, you're a sinner, I forgive you. The blood of Jesus shouts, you're unclean, I make you clean. The blood of Jesus shouts, you're unholy, I make you holy. The blood of Jesus says, you're unloved, but I make you lovable. The blood of Jesus says, there's no reason for you to look forward to the future, but I give you a future in me. The grace of God was to come outside the camp to pursue those who were far from God to bring us to God for now and forever. The altar that we have is Christ himself that gives us full, unbroken, unfettered access to God and it is the better altar. Our better altar is the blood of Jesus. So we fight against the diverse and the strange and the novel and the new by reciting to ourselves who Christ is, what Christ has done, and what it is that we bring to the table, which is simply our sin and the problem. But Christ brought love and mercy and compassion and grace and he changed all things and he'll make all things new. We come to God through him. He's the better altar. He's the only altar that bears any fruit before God. So, by way of application, if you are a child of God, Our response is to remain at the altar of Jesus outside the camp. If you're a child of God, our response is to stand firm in the grace of God that flows to us through the blood of Jesus sacrificed outside the camp. If you're a child of God, then our discipleship is to dwell in the grace of God extended to us in the person of Jesus. 
We have nowhere else to go. We will spend all of eternity celebrating and enjoying and loving what Christ has done for us. And if we're bored by grace, we will hate an eternity with God. If we're bored by the saving power of Jesus, then we will hate an eternity with God. This passage says, remain, stand, dwell, be firm. Your place before God is secure in Christ. And if you have Christ, you have everything. Now, if you're here today and you Maybe you're not a child of God in the sense that that you're not a follower of Jesus. Maybe you don't even know if you accept the claims of Jesus or maybe you think we're all a bunch of crazy people. I want to invite you to consider Christ today. Hear this. Jesus knows every struggle that you have. And rather than condemning you for your contribution to those struggles, he went outside the camp. That is, he came to where we are. And he offered himself as a sacrifice for our sin so that we can be welcomed into his family. And that's the invitation. Christ is offering deliverance of all your struggles caused by sin and sin committed and sinned against you. He's offering deliverance to all of that through the blood of his son. The blood of Jesus is the better way. I invite you to consider him today. And so the third point, which we will come to next week, this is my way of drawing you back, is we, how do we respond to this? How do we respond to this? He says, We respond to this truth by going ourselves outside the camp and bearing the reproach that he endured. So next week we'll talk about what does it look like to live in light of this truth. But for today, I want you to consider this. In what ways are we elevating new novel, air quote, better approaches to God over resting in the gift of God's grace in the life and death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. Will you remain and stand and dwell in him? Our Father and our God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your goodness, for your mercy, Thank you that there is hope in Christ. We pray now that you would work in all of us to cause us to depend more upon Jesus. Pray this in his name. Amen.